Welcome to another episode of the Visual Friends Radio. And before we hop into today's episode, a couple of announcements about the upcoming workshops. As you probably know, we have monthly trainings in Melbourne and Sydney and almost every month in Brisbane. But we're not coming every month to Canberra or Perth. And with that, we have an upcoming workshop on the 5th of September in Canberra again. And in Perth, we are on the 10th of October 2000. And, 19. and this date is shortly before the VisConf. And at the VisConf, we have amazing workshops on Thursday and Friday. And then on Saturday, we have the whole day, the conference with amazing speakers. One from the States with Heather Martinez in another interview, interviewed here on the channel, as well as Sarah first that you have in this interview now. So please have a look at visconf.com.au and if you like to join our training, have a look at visualfriends.com. And before we hop into the interview, let me introduce to you Sarah. I met Sarah first when I moved a second time to Australia in 2013 and she was for me like the graphic recorder I saw and um, I really admired her and still admire her great art she produces. We learn about her upbringing, how she grew up in Canberra and also traveled the world. We hear about sketchnoting and how it helped in her school years taking visual notes to focus to the teachers and with that how she started having a career as an artist with coming to graphic recording then in around 2010. Amazing stories she shares about a major accident and how she got back to life using sketchnoting again while she was in hospital. Today she uses her skill to work in very challenging situations. She likes to work with non-for-profit organizations, for example, to work um, with people to overcome a trauma. Sarah shares some tips of how you can improve your drawing skills step by step over the years to become a rock star in the field of graphic recording. With that, enjoy the episode and we look forward to see you and Sarah at VisConf 2019 on the 19th of October 2019. Welcome to a new episode of the Visual Facilitation Podcast from the Visual Friends, the Visual friends radio this time with our co-host from sketch group matthew mcgain welcome matthew hi marcel how are you you sound amazing an amazing microphone man <laughs> 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 and this time with our special guest and keynote speaker at this year's RISConf, the big visualization conference in melbourne we run annually with sarah first welcome sarah hi Sarah is a graphic recorder that I long for know for a long time, a strategic visualizer, writer, animator, and, by the way, an award-winning cartoonist. Great to have you on the show, Sarah. Thank you so much for inviting me to chat with you guys. Very cool. We, we will have you at the VisConf, and um, Matt and I thought we introduce you a bit to the audience who come to VisConf. This year is hosted again at MYOB in Cremorne in Melbourne. And we thought it's it's good start to uh, learn a bit about who is Sarah and where do you grow up? Who? How did you grow up? And yeah, maybe we start with with your childhood and uh, like how you got then later into visualization. So I grew up in Canberra, or as some people say, Canberra, <laughs> uh, which is the the proud nation's capital of Australia, which a lot of people don't love but I loved growing up in Canberra it was very safe lots of trees lots of birds and just kind of the right combination of safe and boring enough that there was a lot of space for me as a child to play outside and just explore and kind of run wild which is exactly what I needed I was very um, fidgety and hyperactive child that didn't want to stay still I just had a very kind of like nature upbringing. Um, and my parents are both designers. My dad's an architect and my mom's a landscape architect and an academic and a teacher. And so we spent a lot of time, you know, exploring buildings, exploring building sites, looking at gardens. And also I spent quite a lot of time in Europe as a child because my parents would go there for research and, you know, work connections and stuff and also to visit family. So I spent quite a lot of time in Germany and France and Italy. 
Mm-hmm. So that also gave me a sort of certain idea about the world and culture. And, you know, quite early on, I experienced sort of cultural difference and, you know, how what is really normal for one person is very different for another person and how simultaneously exciting but confusing and strange and wonderful navigating that space is. So I don't really visit Canberra that much these days, but I definitely feel very connected to country. So I feel very connected to sort of the Ngunnawal um, landscape and history and plants and animals that are part of country there. So I get like quite sentimental and particularly um, a particular moth that's called the Bogong moth that passes through Canberra. And you'd get it in Sydney as well, these huge swarms of moths descending on Parliament House and like attacking Parliament. And, you know, so that's a very evocative part of growing up is just these moth invasions. <laughs> um, yeah. And at what age have you been traveling with your parents? What was their job or their uh, like? Oh, so again, because I was a very hyperactive child and this was before smartphones and tablets and things. Yeah. The only way that my parents could get me to sit still was to give me pen and paper. So this is actually how I started putting pen to paper, mm-hmm. uh, was out of my parents' desperation of tiny child being wild. And I was able to channel my energy through the pen. And so I have all these journals from traveling as a child. And my mum would make little quilted covers for the books. And it was a very special kind of, you know, this is a special book you know, write down and draw things you see and what you like. And so my first ever travel journal is this little journal from, I can't remember what year it was, but I was like three, it was like three and a quarter. And the whole journal is just full of these like intense pictures of mermaids. So I just was obsessed with mermaids. So um, your, your mom basically did the words and you did the pictures. So it's a tag team experience for graphic recording, I would say. It's like, so we ha- you started your career with Serena Howe. Yeah, yeah. So she like wrote my name and she tried to get me yeah. to write my name, uh, but I couldn't write my name. And mm-hmm. so it's just scribbles and stuff. And um, she tried to get me to draw other things other than mermaids, but I just draw the mermaids. But yeah, it's very sweet. It's very sweet. Yeah, that, that's really cool. I'm interested. I'm just thinking, uh, I have a little boy, Liam, who is now two, and his, his favorite topic is not mermaids, it's tractors. Everything that has an engine is yes. loud enough. And I'm... <laughs> Let's see. Maybe I, we, uh, I can start. Uh, I started drawing with him, but it's uh, it looks more like abstract art. I would say something you find in modern art exhibitions. That's great. So far, no mermaids and no. <laughs> <laughs> really nice. And so, so what happens after that? You 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 today live in in Melbourne. Like, uh, w- did the family move to Melbourne, or what happened? And how did you avoid a career in the public service like everyone else? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. It's a very long story. Oh, boy. I moved to Melbourne in 2010, and it's the first time, you know how people say, trust your intuition, listen to your gut, all this kind of thing. The the impulse to move to Melbourne was actually the first time I can think of having a really clear, impractical but necessary intuition to move to Melbourne. I didn't know why and it was very inconvenient and it caused a relationship breakup and all kinds of things. But it just, I was like, go to Melbourne. And I was like, I need to go to Melbourne. And I've been here ever since. And I adore living here and have wonderful connections with communities here and friends and work and lifestyle. So I feel happy with that risky gut decision. Mm-hmm. For the Melburnians on the on the show, which suburb you live in? Very important. I live in Brunswick East. Yeah, which is so hip. Yeah. Uh, it's unfortunately very gentrified now, but you know that's what happens. Very nice. When you started drawing as a child, and then like at one point you you moved to Melbourne. It's like, have you already in Canberra worked in in the graphic facilitation world or did this all started then in Melbourne as a new thing or how do, how does Yeah, all... this all started in Melbourne as a new thing. So, yeah, if I if I want to talk about how I got into graphic recording, graphic facilitation, mm-hmm. to me there's two kind of key moments. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a, it's a conglomeration of lots of things coming coalescing together, but to me there's two key moments that sort of led me on this path. And the first thing was, like, as I mentioned before, when I was younger, I was, you know, very hyperactive, couldn't sit still, very fidgety. Yeah, I had learning problems and behavioral problems. And kindergarten was great. Lots of 
art making and moving and dancing great but primary school I really struggled and I was struggling to read and I was struggling to count and I started to have the shame creeping in and thinking "Uh oh there's something different with me there's something wrong here I'm maybe stupid and I'd get in trouble all the time with my teacher for fidgeting and doodling and stop that you know pay attention and I remember coming home after a few instances of this and and being very upset and saying to my mom, mom, am I stupid? And she said, Sarah, no, you're not stupid. You just have a different brain. You just think differently and you see things differently. And I feel so grateful to her. And part of it is she's actually originally a chemistry and maths teacher. And we've actually argued my whole life about she's really good at abstract thinking and mathematics, whereas I'm not that way inclined. We argue about that. But she, as a pedagogue, as a as an educator, she could see clearly that I was very curious, very interested, but just didn't work in a linear way that I was expected to. And, you know, bless her, she saw that. If I'd had a different parent, they might have said, yeah, sorry, you're stupid, you know. But she said, okay, what can we do to help you? And because she, out of necessity, had given me pen and paper, she knew that if I was given pen and paper, I would sit still and I would transfer all of my dancing energy into my, we called it dancing the pen and I would dance on the paper. And so she actually made me this beautiful little note to take to my teacher that said, dear teacher, please let Sarah draw in class. It helps her pay attention and learn. And so whenever I get in trouble with teachers, I would give them this little note and say, my mom says I can doodle in class. (laughs) And, And then I didn't get in trouble anymore. And so I was able to sit there and, you know, do these elaborate sort of just it initially patterns and things like that but I learned through drawing I learned how to draw words because again words were a bit too abstract for me I didn't understand words but I, I could use drawing which is more literal and learn to draw words and then I was also able to learn to write pictures so kind of learning the kind of levels of abstraction between picture and word and word and picture together helped me finally learn how to read and write. And it also gave me a huge amount of confidence because obviously I was putting in hours into this stuff. And so other students were like, oh, your, your notes are so colorful. And so I felt a bit confident, started taking more notes, um, you know, and then teachers were like, oh, your homework is so beautiful, you know. So then again, I built this confidence around the skill that was the thing that helped me to like not feel stupid. And, you know, it's funny how that thread has carried through my whole life of, you know, whenever, even talking with you guys now, I'm doodling, taking notes, things like that, because it's just such a part of how I engage with and understand the world. So that's the first big experience that kind of led me towards graphic facilitation. And then the second experience was in 2007, I had a bad car accident and I couldn't walk for a while and also got short-term memory loss and um, brain injury and things, which was extremely scary. I was, you know, in my early 20s at the time and it was, you know, a big shock to young person who feels invincible kind of thing. But again, out of necessity, I used, you know, graphic recording, note-taking, organizing to help myself remember things and help train my memory again, help to remember people's names, you know, writing little lists and things like that, you know, and creating maps on walls to help my memory. And again, that sort of given me this really tangible case for why visualization is so valuable. Sarah, there's a lot to unpack in there. And one, two things I want to I want to recap for a second, and mm. two topics. One is having this special gift that you were, were doing one thing in school very great, uh, very good with the doodling and dancing, and the other thing you couldn't do. So this this way of how we can help adults who have kids as well to see in the right perspective and and talk a bit more about the how we educate kids, and maybe in a second uh, about it. Uh, and the other thing is like how you basically after this uh, accident, how you basically got back to to your normal life uh, using doodling and sketch noting, graphic calling, whatever you want to call it again. And um, yeah. before we go into the uh, how you re- restarted your life after this accident, in this child thing, I, I have to say I, I was in my school. I went to a, um, a Steiner school. Oh, yeah. I, I was very similar to you. And uh, the teacher actually gave me modeling clay that I had to use. So for me, it was a different experience. I got told in front of the class, I had to play with clay instead of writing and I wanted to write, learn to write. Um, 
so interesting, but the, the, so there is some awareness in some schools, right? But I like mm. the special note you got from your mom, like, like a James Bond. I have a, have a, a passport. I, I have a passport. I can do this. This is really great. So what, what is the thing like you would say to an adult um, who has kids as well, summarizing your experience with your mom and in this, in, in the whole school years? Oh, well, I mean, look, I'm not, I'm not an expert on this stuff. I would say that, you know, go and read Ken Robertson and his book, The Element, you know, because I just feel like there's so much, I really like cognitive diversity. And I think that, that people naturally have a lot of cognitive diversity that often gets kind of smashed into a very kind of formulaic linear mindset. And there's some real gifts in people who are more, you know, abstract thinkers or um, more embodied thinkers and it's just sort of finding ways to empower young people to leverage whatever intelligences they are attracted to i don't i've read some stuff about how you know the idea of like different learning models of like kinesthetic visual linear whatever like it's kind of redundant like it's not there's a bit reductive and it's not quite how it works but you know there are just some people who like for example I'm much more of an embodied kinesthetic person, general, sensual person generally, whereas my partner, he is like exceptional level abstract thinking to the point where if anyone was ever going to turn into a brain in a jar, it would be him because he just forgets that he has a body, you know, which is fascinating to me because I can't even relate to that. You know, whereas for him, he thinks like a physicist, he thinks in abstract, whereas for me, I'm, I have to work up to that. And I think teachers and parents having more nuanced awareness of the fact that people think and perceive and engage with the world differently is a good place to start. And that, you know, sometimes behavioral, again, I'm really reluctant to say this stuff because I'm not an expert on this at all. But I just think that, yeah, sometimes stuff that exhibits as behavioral problems is frustration on the part of a child of, you know, that methodology or that approach is not working very well for them for whatever reason and to try other things mm -hmm. yeah. and then when this accident happened was you already living in melbourne or like what what and, and then how you got into back in with with doodling or with drawing back into the normal day-to-day -day life so i've always drawn but i've also been very interested in movement whether that's dance or um animation or whatever so after high school i actually went to art school and trained as a sculptor And so I was making kinetic sculptures. And what that means is I was, you know, reclaiming old car parts and designing robots, basically. And I was actually making sculptures that were drawing machines. So I was outsourcing my drawing to contemporary sculptures. And I really enjoyed welding and performative sculptures. So I was kind of going in that trajectory in theatre and performance and sculpture. And I was, I got a big commission and workshop thing to go and work with Carriage Works, which is a big art center in Sydney that went really well. And they asked me if I'd like to become a welder for them, for their theater production and their rigging and all that kind of stuff. And I thought, you know, straight out of university is a fantastic job. But that's when I had the car accident as I was trying to move from Canberra to Sydney, I had this car accident on the way to work and Looking back on it, I feel like it was a sign, but I don't know. I just feel like that was a path my life could have gone on that would have been great, probably, hopefully. But that, that interruption kept me stuck in Canberra for longer and changed my path where I was stuck in bed and I couldn't walk. And it was a huge identity shock because I'd been dancing martial arts, sculpture, And I couldn't walk. And I thought, oh my gosh, what if I can never make sculpture? What if I can't weld? What if I can't lift heavy things again? And so I went through a process of grieving. And that's when I turned back to words, writing, sort of the therapeutic aspects of, you know, cartooning. And also animation was like the closest thing I could get to kinetic sculpture. I could do it from my bed with my computer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that, again, like life interrupted, life changed. Um, took me down a different path, but I, I, you know, returned to these visual tools that were always there and it's taken me to here. <laughs> Sarah, I have a question. Sure. You struck me as an incredible thinker and you've definitely, I suspect, correct me if I'm wrong, but identify as an artist. 
And I think that a lot of people that work, for example, as graphic recorders, possibly don't. I, I think I would put myself in that category. I think that oh, yeah. uh, for me, the work, I love the work and I love getting paid to draw and I love the challenge of visualizing complex information and fun conversations. But interestingly, I don't really create art for fun. I feel mm. like I got quite a lot of satisfaction out of doing the work, but I'm not an artist. And I don't know if that's because, so I trained as an engineer, I worked as a mm. software developer, and I see my visual skills as a problem-solving skill and a tool mm. to you, I, and I love using the tool. So I'm mm. curious to hear from you how you juggle switching between being an artist and doing paid work for clients and the grey area where those two things overlap. Yeah, so that's a really, it's really interesting that you said all of that because uh, like another thread for me in my life has been an interest in natural science. And so when I finished high school, I actually almost went into natural science or like or social science. So I was thinking of becoming a biologist or a zoologist. I've always grown plants and always been interested in animal behaviors and ecosystems and things. And I also, you know, love learning about human systems and just science stuff generally. But I had this moment where I went, okay, Sarah, you're still young. You love art. Why not take that creative risk now and do something stupid and frivolous and go to art school while you're young? And if that doesn't work out, you can go and do something more practical. And I'm really glad that I, you know, took that risk when I was young and did that. But I feel like a lot of people have multiple sides to themselves where, you know, like a creative side and a more problem solving practical kind of side. And like, I definitely have these two parts of myself that I'm able to nurture and fulfill through my kind of double life of being an artist and also a visual practitioner. And in my own mind, I have this very clear delineation between first and foremost, I consider myself an artist. That's where I came from. And the, the kind of motivation and impetus that I have is this kind of being this like custodian to this flow of creative energy. And that's what lights up my heart and, and my life is very much this like creative emergence. And so that's what I protect and that's what I nurture very carefully as a creative. But this other part of me really wants to be useful in the world. And for many years I was trying to make my art useful and make money off my art and it actually killed the art. So I realized, you know, let's split this. Let's have your art and your artist is this Keep it strange. Don't make it make sense. Keep it weird. It's this fresh flow, creative play, nonsense, whatever, you know, or, or even deep and dark place. And then on the side, you can focus on how can you deliver value to other people? How can I use my skills, my thinking to support people doing great work, to um, be of service to people? And they've just very different mind, like, from the outside, people look at what I do and it's like, oh, you're just doing all this creative stuff all the time. Whereas for me, I have these different channels of like creative work that has no agenda and is emergent and then work that is very focused on value delivery and problem solving. I think I really needed to hear that. Thank you. Oh, that's good. <laughs> um, that's so good. And how do, you, how do you go context switching between the two? Is it difficult? Well, and it's hard. How, yeah. how do you... How do you schedule time to make that happen or do you not? Look, it's really hard. Like I, you know, I can go through like a timeline year by year where I got some amazing coaching from this woman, Josie Gibson, who is a coach for CEOs from the Catalyst Network. And she had this great idea of like, it's not about work-life balance or whatever. It's about sliders. So like a mixing desk with different sliders for different sound mixing. And it's like at different points in your life, you might pump up the, the volume on paid client work because you need to pay your mortgage and you've just had another kid, you know, whatever. And then there's other years where you might knock that sound down and bring up the sound of, okay, I'm going to explore. I'm going to take creative risks here. I'm going to try a new creative project. I'm going to collaborate, do this wild collaboration that makes no sense. You know, and you can kind of just mix these things around. And that concept has really helped me because I've tended to kind of overshoot either going too creative and not doing enough focused client value delivery work. And then other times going too client focused where I just don't fill up my creative well and I just burn out. Mm. And through fucking it up lots of times and burning out lots of times, I've realized that I am the kind of creature 
that to honor and look after myself, I actually have to protect my creative time because that's just my soul or something. And so I take that very seriously now, mixing up and, and really gauging what I need. Do I need a week off? And just setting very clear boundaries with clients as well and explaining to them that I'm more of a sort of boutique creative person and that sometimes I'm not available because I do other projects and I do publishing and I do cartoons and other work. I don't just do service delivery. And I think a lot of people really respect that as well because it gives them permission to honor other parts of themselves, which can be really hard because everyone's trying to be effective and deliver great value and be available and efficient and things. But yeah, switching is hard, particularly responsibility wise. Like I like I love stakeholder management and I love doing the best work for my clients. And the kind of mindset that I need to be into to do like playful, experimental, creative work is like the opposite of responsibility. Like if anything, it's kind of like benign neglect. You know, it's like going back into the space of being a child where you don't have to cook dinner, someone else will look after you, you can knock stuff over and it's not the end of the world. And that's really hard as an adult particularly if you have children or particularly if you have responsibilities or, you know, difficult things going on. Hmm. On this, on this balance between art and, and more like not directed creativity or are you creative with an outcome focus um, to make your client happier? So I don't want to say I have the answer, but um, I'm also like juggling because I'm the dad at home, um, hmm. the, the kid. So I don't want to say I have a solution that works, but I have something that I'm working on that it will work. So I have mm. two offices. I can't work at home. I'm just clean up the whole house. And then I go to the <laughs> studio uh, where I have almost no internet. I don't know why they can't do a better one because it's a media center. And I have a room there that I produce videos. And then the other day I found drive into a co-working space where I have a lot of energy and active energy around me where I could do my small things like emails and stuff and uh, quotes or something. And uh, I keep them absolutely separate, those three places. And so far, it's uh, it gives me stability to do stay productive without burning out because this burning out is, is not a problem you already have. I, I can definitely say I have the same. And the thing you said before, before, like Matt, you, you're coming from a software developing point, so like me. Um, I've also studied from uh, computer science and economics. And, the, and then when I saw first time standing next to Sarah, in a, in a, it was one once experience, next to Sarah doing a graphic recording. It's like, what, I, what the hell I'm doing here? This is amazing art that she produced, and I'm coming with uh, text and boxes. And so the, the amazing thing is this is like a melting pot. The whole visual mm. facilitation, graphic facilitation world is a melting pot where those domains, those different uh, skills come together. This is why it's so powerful. And this is why you can burn out so quick because you... Mm, it is, yeah. It, it, it's inspiring to see the other side and uh, you get automatically dragged across and you learn on the other side out of your comfort zone in the learning zone and hell if you, if you go into panic mode, uh, into right? So it's like a, it's, it's uh, I think we have all been there. And, and I think a lot of other people as well, especially when you work with uh, big clients in, in big setups. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting navigating those spaces. And, you know, and it's also quite interesting what you said is like, you know, someone who is more service orientated and coming from a technical background, you might look at someone who's more of an artist and feel intimidated by them. Whereas I look at the kind of work that both of you do, and I feel a bit intimidated that I don't work, you know, efficiently and um, fast enough, and I should build a team and grow a business and all this kind of stuff. But then it's also like, you're different, I'm different. And it's, like, it's about figuring out what, you know, constellation of things makes you feel good and excited in, in the work that you can do. And it's interesting how I find that my ability to draw can actually get in the way of people understanding what's actually going on in a graphic recording. And I sometimes feel like people who don't draw as much and put in as much sort of illustration and color, like just keep it more bare bones, the functional value of visual facilitation is in some ways clearer, the less pretty your work is. Because when your work is pretty, people get a little bit bamboozled by the prettiness and they don't see what's actually happening. 
at the same time, the prettiness can be a really great engagement point and people sort of fall in love with it because it looks good. But again, you can look at different styles and different approaches and see different benefits or different assets to those different approaches. So yeah, it's really quite interesting. This is such an interesting topic. Actually, we had a, an open space session called Pretty Versus Practical at the <laughs> last year. I remember, um, I think it was Debbie Wood who hosted it. And yeah, if people want to scroll through the canvases from last year's conference, there is a canvas of this very topic and a bunch of interesting comments made in the session. Um, another thing that came to mind as you were introducing yourself, Sarah, for me was it sounded like you used your drawing in a number of different ways to help yourself in various circumstances. You used it to stay focused in class. You used it to occupy your mind when you were bored. You used it to kind of figure things out in terms of um, trying to think through things. Have you got any stories to share where you have used this visual skill in a particularly unique way that's been helpful? So again, like, I don't know whether to draw a line between like the kind of workshops and storytelling workshops that I've done with students using comics and comics methodology versus graphic recording methodology because they're kind of, they're so similar and also very different. The first kind of workshops that I did around visualization and storytelling were comics based. So it was like, how do you share feelings? How do you share a narrative and a story through the combination of words and pictures. What do you show and what do you tell? And how words and pictures are a window into your mind, into your feeling. And also the combination of oral storytelling, which is that you can write a comic and um, show that to someone. You can also put it up on a wall and, and sort of tell your story with the visual asset to help people see and feel what it's like to be you or your perspective and with the students. So one of the first kind of big comic workshop jobs I got was when I came to Melbourne in 2010, I put in a proposal to go and um, work in Springvale. And so at the time, Springvale was the most multiculturally diverse urban area in Australia. And I was working with recently arrived refugees and migrants from like very young children up to adults. And I was just making it up as I was going along, but I just realized that a lot of, there were, there were a lot of beautiful things happening around belonging, um, but also a lot of very difficult things happening around racism and exclusion and, you know, just trauma and just sort of difficult cultural stuff happening and trying to figure out ways to talk about that in a way that wasn't scary and just at whatever level people felt comfortable with. And I feel like comics are just, Words and pictures are a very um, empathic and engaging way to understand something that's happened, a process, uh, the way something feels. And it's, it's so simple but also so powerful. And that was the first time that I really um, experienced that. I don't know if that answers the question. Mm, definitely. <laughs> the other thing that came to mind from I've, I've been familiar with your work for a while, even though we haven't actually known each other for that long, but mm. I've always uh, when you mentioned at the start of our chat that you talked about dancing the pen, and that very much, for me, sums up your style. It looks like there's a pen oh. there on the page. Um, how, how did you find your style? How long did it take for you to explore different ways of capturing letters and form and, and images before you settled upon the style that is synonymous with your brand now and your artwork? Oh, my gosh, years. I, like I look back at drawings and things that I did even two years ago, and I think, oh, wow, I've just improved so much since then. <laughs> um, and when I was younger, you know, I would, you know, trace Disney princesses and things because I was like, oh, I want to be able to draw as good as those. And, you know, I think that that's a fundamental stage that anyone learning to draw or write goes through is copy, steal stuff, copy it, draw it, you know, um, figure out how other people do it. And then over time, you start to sort of get your groove on it's like getting into flow it's like if you want to learn how to do anything you have to learn the techniques first and that's very I think it's right brain it's like very detailed for, uh, I think Ian McGilchrist who wrote that book about sort of left right brain he talks about when you're learning to play music you hear a piece of music you like it you want to learn it you have to break it down into little chunks and analyze it and work on your fingering and things but then when you want to actually play the piece and have it 
you know, have your own style in the piece. You have to kind of drop all the details and kind of go into a flow state and play with it and embellish it a little bit. And I feel like with drawing, it's very similar as you learn the techniques. And then over time, you start to draw your figures with a certain type of nose or you start to realize you really like a certain color palette and you kind of just riff off your own enjoyment, I guess. And that's how I've developed my style is just continually drawing and enjoying drawing and relaxing more with the pen and the flow state. And if anything, doing graphic recording live in front of people has helped me to let go even more and kind of have a very emergent, flowy, I don't know, like I sometimes get clients coming and looking at pictures and they're like, that person only has three fingers or that thing is not, I work a lot with engineers and they'll be like, that that way you drew that machine is not technically correct. You know, this should be here, which I love. But also I'm like, it doesn't really matter that much, you know, and that's quite liberating. Whereas if I was very fine art focused, I might still be very like trying to draw it right. Cool. I know that a lot of the listeners of the podcast also are new to, to the field of graphic recording, but really are interested in the, in the field. And um, one thing that I, I think it's an interesting topic is when you, when you turn it into a business, what you, what you did when you like draw, like met uh, with sketch group, like a lot of graphic recordings and you hear the same topics again and again, because it's about maybe flat hierarchies, new ways of working, like collaboration, like the things that are very important in our economy right now. And the, the question is, I think, how do you motivate yourself? And also how do you improve your style? Like what is the suggestion you would give to a person who has maybe one, two years experience and, and with doing that in meetings. And if the person mm. would like to practice to, become a, a graphic recorder what is the what are the tips to practice to learn step by step and how do you stay motivated even maybe when it's a topic that you don't believe in or you don't like yeah it's a very interesting question let's take the technical lens first so with getting better or more confident or you know however you want to define that with your graphic recording is you know pay attention to what freaks you out so for example for many many years drawing cars and drawing horses where my freak out zone. So I spent a lot of time, you know, focusing on what are my weaknesses and trying to figure out easier ways to deal with them and also building on my strengths, obviously. But feedback is so essential. Feedback from clients, feedback from friends, just, you know, suggestions, connecting with people in the community. Like I just think connecting with community and creating friendships is like the way to learn and grow and to see things that you don't see. For example, I've never thought my lettering is very good at all. And I also haven't really been bothered or worried about it. I'm like, it's legible. That's fine. And someone the other day said to me, oh, I love your lettering. Teach me how to do your lettering. And I thought, ah, I just don't even think about lettering at all. you know. And if I hadn't talked with them about that, I wouldn't ever consider myself good at lettering. So yeah, I would say keep practicing. Even try copying the style of someone that you like. Um, I mean, that you, you need to be careful not to just copy someone's style because that's not the way to do it. But, you know, try that kind of font. If they draw figures in a certain way, you could try that kind of style, um, see what you like. We're staying motivated. That's, <laughs> that's a very good question. So when I first started graphic recording, like how I technically got into graphic recording was through my partner. When we met in 2010, I was actually driving trucks and running a plant stall at the time. And he just looked at what I, my notes and he was like, far out. These notes are amazing. Would you ever consider doing that in a business setting? And I thought, oh, I don't know what that is. And he, he was working in IT and systems design. And he said, would you ever consider coming in and helping system designers and system architects to explain how a system works to stakeholders? And I was like, I don't know what any of that means, but I'll give it a go. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I turned up and it was very strange and messy, but even just my scribbles and me asking stupid questions helped to create a bridge between content experts communicating with stakeholders where there was a gap. And so I realized, oh, just asking questions and trying to shape out something is really useful. And so I went from there and I ended up working with Capgemini for quite a while, working with PricewaterhouseCoopers and also KPMG absolutely amazing experience, met amazing community, learned about the MG Taylor methodology of facilitation. So really rich, beautiful experience. However, 
I got a little bit skeptical, maybe let's say cynical, about the um, realities of corporate culture and the limitations that are there and the jargon that are there and just cultural aspects of working in corporate spaces that I didn't feel personally comfortable with. And working in that space was very demotivating for me because it was, I started to see these patterns and these repetitions of innovation and this and that. And I felt like this has become a little bit meaningless for me. And I don't mean that to be a value judgment on anyone working in those spaces because for other people, it can be really engaging and important. And there are lots of people doing great work, but just for me, it didn't feel right. And that lack of motivation actually propelled me to try and find what is it that motivates me in this work. And I realized that I love learning. Like you said, Matt, I love learning and I love thinking. And so I actually want to go and work in challenging, difficult situations where I really believe in what people are doing. Uh, And so that's what propelled me into looking for work with not-for-profits and environmental work, climate change work, work around social change, you know, work with trauma which are very difficult spaces and that was a huge learning curve. But I realized that the level of challenge there was the right fit to keep me motivated because I really cared about the work that they were doing, you know, and the future of water security, which is really scary to think about and also like the impacts of climate change on cities and this kind of thing. But being in there in the room with really smart people who are working on that stuff and helping them to communicate to stakeholders and communicate to government is really, really rewarding for me. So in regards to motivation, I would say find industries, find content that you are really interested in. For some people, that's the health industry. They really care about health and improving the health system, you know, and you can specialize in those areas or you really care about homelessness or technology or, you know, whatever. And if you want to get into those areas and you don't know how to get in, you can always go to a conference and do graphic recording at the conference and then share it with those people at the conference and say, you know, I'm really interested in this work and give me a call if you ever want to, you know. Hopefully that makes sense. <laughs> Definitely. Sarah, um, you mentioned working in some difficult spaces like trauma. I imagine just having drawing skills was probably not enough to succeed in being a valuable contributor to that conversation. Some kind of next level listening skills are probably pretty handy. Do you want to talk a bit about your journey with with listening? Yeah. Again, I feel a little bit like unqualified to talk about it because there are lots of other people who who have done really deep work in this area, but more for me through trial and error of working with people who are different to me, so different socioeconomic groups, different racial groups, cultural groups. You very quickly learn about power dynamics and that – you know, when you're a scribe, you are in a power position, you are representing what happened in a group situation, and that every graphic recording is subjective, even if you are doing your absolute best to have fidelity in what you're doing. And there's questions of how do you navigate that? So that's where stakeholder management to me is extremely important, which is when you meet with clients, if you are in a difficult space or in a cross-cultural space or in a space that you're not familiar with, that you are just very open about that. It's like, I really want to represent you and your voices and your group well. I'm aware that I potentially have biases or assumptions here. You know, please let me know if I do something wrong. Please let me know if this is inappropriate and just being really open to making a mistake, but allowing for feedback. And it can be scary to be vulnerable in that way where you're like, oh, I don't want to make a mistake. I'm going to look bad or whatever. But you can reframe it, which is like the fear of making a mistake and the fear of doing the wrong thing is actually a wish, which is you want to help and you want to be of service. And how can you do that better? By admitting that you don't know and, you know, collaborating and talking about how to bridge and navigate that space. And sometimes it's not appropriate. So I've had some like quite baptism by fire experiences of, you know, working in cultural spaces that were not mine and that I didn't have awareness of very specific cultural issues that were happening and, you know, being told to sit down and shut up and, you know, get out of the room and this kind of thing, which is just upsetting because no one likes to be wrong. But I realized in those moments, actually, it wasn't really appropriate for me to be there because it wasn't my business 
And as I've got more experienced, you know, just being able to navigate that and like recommend other graphic recorders that are more appropriate, you know, like for example, as a woman, I wouldn't graphic record a men's business meeting and just being aware of, you know, cultural things like eye contact, what's appropriate with different groups. And also if people have gone through trauma, you know, understanding that they might might not feel safe to talk to you, but they might feel safe to talk to someone else. And just being very mindful of challenges. And whenever I do graphic recordings, I try to put an empowering spin on it. But there are times where, you know, I do quite a lot of rural rural work and I have gone and graphically recorded with groups where there were like major um, socioeconomic social issues where the options were like work terrible jobs or go on um, Centrelink. They're both the same money. And so there's this standstill of like total social economic disempowerment and no amount of me drawing, you know, pretty pictures. Like it's kind of offensive if I'm drawing like fun, happy, like people, because it's like, this is a really serious, difficult situation, you know, and I feel like representation is really important, you know, and just checking in that no one finds the representation that you have done offensive or anything and you know and sometimes you get surprised like I had a great event once where one of the participants was this awesome older man in a wheelchair and um, I went up to him and I was like I want to draw you because you're talking so much how should I draw your wheelchair and he just said just draw it like it's part of my body it's part of my life just draw it and so I kept drawing him in his wheelchair and we kind of had this little game and he'd like ask me to put flames out the back of the wheelchair and like build on extensions and stuff and so it became this really engaging fun thing you know and working on a piece for a trans awareness education for a development organization working with the trans representation team to make sure that I was representing well interestingly though we decided on like pink and blue as the color scheme for the piece and then some other people came and like oh why have you used pink and blue that's very gender specific that's a Mm -hmm. bit offensive and then it was like well actually the trans flag has got pink and blue and so you know we had talked about it and again there's no right thing it's just like negotiating and talking about and just being sensitive to representing different people and particularly people that aren't you and being aware of like you don't know a lot of things and I love the fact that uh, all the various elements that you touched on just then just go to highlight how well you mentioned the word power that we do have powers as describe mm. in the room and it's so much more than just being the silent fly on the wall, we really do change the fundamental dynamic of the room and, you know, your examples just kind of back that up. Yeah. Um, another thing I do with listening and creating a space is usually when I start a session, I'll get on the microphone or say hi to everybody and just explain why I'm there, what I'm doing, what the intention is of what I'm doing and invite people to come and talk to me. And if they see spelling, this is another good thing about like my difficulties with writing and learning is that I'm dyslexic and so I make spelling mistakes all the time and so people love to come and correct my spelling and I love it when they do it so I actively invite people to come and give me feedback and help me because I'm not good at spelling and that's an entry point for people to say like oh the way you drew this person is a little bit problematic or I don't think you realize but culturally that color means this and maybe change it so much ground to cover Sarah, I'm just on your website and look at your amazing publications. Like every year you have stuff you published about. And when we, when we look back at this interview we did so far, what topics haven't we touched that you would say, uh, I'm, I'm very passionate about. I would like to talk a bit about that um, before we ask you a bit more about the upcoming VizCon and put this into perspective. Oh, well, actually, I would like to plug a book launch. <laughs> so this has been a year like someone joked with me they're like this is the year that you're shitting books because i have four books coming out this year but i worked on them last year so not actually working on them now but there's um a comics anthology coming out on the 20th of september at 5 30 p.m at readings in carlton Mm -hmm. and the book is called drawing power Uh, And it's an anthology of comic artists from around the world talking about harassment and survival in different contexts. And it's an amazing, very diverse book. So if anyone is interested, 
and coming along to that launch on the 20th, Friday the 20th of September. Please do come. It's free and they have wine and other things that are not alcohol. But yeah, so I've been doing a lot of book stuff this year and I feel very excited. Like I'm a, just a big advocate for visualization, whether it's comics, whether it's graphic recording, any kind of visual communication. What was your contribution to the anthology? It's about a year of work that I did working as an operations assistant at a medical institute where I was the only woman um, in a team of 12 engineers. That was a difficult experience. Um, So I have a comic piece in there called Sausage Fest that is about normalised Aussie bloke kind of sexual harassment weirdness and that kind of complex space of nice Aussie blokes but also problems. So, yeah, my piece is kind of like a bit difficult but also quite funny and involves like meat trays and going to raffles and winning meat trays with boys and stuff. I love it. <laughs> is it on Amazon coming out or where is it? Where can you buy it when you can we put it in a show note? Uh, so, yeah, so it's at, it's at readings. It's at a lot of different bookshops. You can buy it online. It's good to buy books at bookshops if you can, so you can support your local mm-hmm. bookshops. Didn't you take some time and get a grant to work on something? Yeah, so after I had a sort of crazy burnout experience in 2013, because I was doing too much client work, I took a sabbatical in 2014 to just do some experimental work and traveling. And then I realized, oh, I want to write a graphic novel. So in 2015, I put a little flag in the ground and went, I'm going to write a book and connected with the comic art workshop and started workshopping a graphic novel and have slowly been working on that over the years. It's very um, research heavy and it's quite experimental. So there's just a lot of research work that goes into it and I decided to put in for a big grant to take again time off work to do extended deep research Uh, and I got a six-month grant through the Creators Fund grant with Creative Victoria so for the past six months of 2019 I've not been doing client work I've just been doing research and writing and drawing which is an absolute dream it was amazing I'm still working on the draft I've got the draft together but still need to tidy it up and things but that's been amazing exciting yeah Yeah. what's the uh roughly anticipated timeline of when that might be available i was hoping that it would be done by the end of the year and then i can take it to different publishers but given the complexity of the work i don't want to push or rush the work at all so it'll be ready when it's ready (laughs) (laughs) fair enough and should we talk about VizConf, the fact that you are one of our celebrated keynote speakers? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm still you, um, figuring out what I'm going to talk about. I've been asking around to see what people would enjoy from a keynote. From the last year's experience and what will we have at this year's VizCon. From the time perspective, we, we made VizConf this year uh, one day longer. The actual conference is a one-day conference on a Saturday, but we have two days before of, of workshops. And uh, the other keynote speaker is Heather Martinez, uh, flying in from the States and doing also a lettering class. Uh, so this is on Thursday and Friday. And we have other great workshops. For example, Matthew runs a sketchnote one-on-one and a graphic recording one-on-one for uh, newbies who are interested in that field. And Danny, one of my teammates, uh, does a visual storytelling as well as um, I do a visual collaboration, which is mainly playing coaching games on a whiteboard. This is like this. Mm. I work right now on it. makes tons of fun. And I'm, I want to give like a toolbox of fun games to play on a whiteboard to every agile coach on the planet. And uh, then we have uh, also Michelle Walker, who runs a session on secrets for thriving a business. Um, it's a two days workshop. And, yeah, so this will happen before on Thursday, Friday. On Friday evening, we have drinks at, at a pub uh, in Melbourne before then the conference starts very early in the morning. Well, I think we're starting at nine because a few people last year said it was too early. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> so Matt and I will be there at seven probably, setting up chairs. And what else? So we have, like, we will have sponsors there. We have uh, a graphic gear again uh, selling amazing uh, toys at the toy shop from Neuland <laughs> and we ha- will have a, pa- a 
look at an open space again. We have we can propose your topics as well. We're also looking for topics that people would like to pitch. So it's like half prepared. Cool. And yeah, so if you're interested, uh, hop on uh, visconf.com.au. Last year we had uh, Sunny Brown pitching her books like uh, Game Storming. The Doodle Revolution the, is the Revolution. Right. Yes, and that was really nice to have her there as well as Jessamy G from Melbourne as well. I don't want to pin Sarah down to any particular topic, but I'm curious no, what she's around yeah. as, as ideas. Where, where are you at at the moment, Sarah? So my approach has been, I could talk about so many different things. So I've been asking the community what topics they're interested in, what they could get a lot out of. I mean, obviously, I don't know everyone who's going, but it's just a general checking the temperature. And surprisingly, something that's coming up a lot is um, ethics, which I feel mm. like was meaty. Well, difficult topic, but I love challenging topics, so we'll see. But yeah, the ethics of, you know, are we supporting broken um, systems by decorating them? What is the ethical role and responsibility of a graphic recorder? How do you decide your own ethics and values around what you create and why? And um, things like, you know, how to stimulate behavior change and systems change through our work and change hearts and minds. And, yeah, operating with sort of more openness and awareness that, you know, we're, we're part of the systems that we're trying to fix. And so there is an amount of personal responsibility with change. Yeah, things like representation and sensitivity to difference and um, navigating complexity in scribes and conflict in scribes and conflicting agendas in scribes. Yeah, and so the way that I work is I tend to go very big and then kind of distill it down into like a chunk. So at this, at this stage, it's sort of quite big and sounds nebulous, but I'll kind of make it punchy and interesting and stimulating. The listeners to this episode will get an appreciation just from the the subjects that you've covered during our conversation that you've got years of experience that I'm sure that it'll be a, a fascinating treatise on whichever topic you land. Yeah. Also, if you have a zoom in into one topic and talk at the keynote about one focus topic or something in, in this and they are connected, you can also propose a session afterwards and um, yes. have in a room of interested people, you, you work further on that topic. And this is what happened last year as well. We, we had then a packed room uh, about graphic recording with Jessamy and how to start a business around this. It was really yeah, exactly. It's really exciting. I love yeah. the open space plan that you have so that that can happen. Yeah, so stay tuned. My key, Whatever my keynote is will be good and it will be a surprise. <laughs> so <laughs> keep you on your toes. But yeah, I've been talking with Heather as well about you know tying in our presentations together so i might be like a little bit more conceptual and like stimulating thoughts and then she'll bring it together with a sort of very tangible takeaway so we're kind of seeing how we can work together which is exciting i can't yes. wait absolutely amazing yes i would like to thank you sarah for your time and matt as well as my co-host and i really appreciate that you had time and, and, and it was an amazing conversation i learned tons and i look forward to see you on the 19th of October in Melbourne. Yeah, I just wanted to say thank you, Sarah, for sharing your story and for being vulnerable. You know, it's, um, you've, you've had a fascinating journey to get to where you are and um, where we really appreciate your raw honesty and, um, and for sharing that with us. And, oh, I and I've forgotten something I want to I want to say. Uh, Matt just came back from the IFVP conference, and he brought a new cross that um, I have just seen a couple of pages, uh, and at least two Aussies have contributed in. It's Jessamy G and also Matt McGain. And yeah, uh, I, I um, what's called the book? I, I, so I, I have a bunch of copies. So for those of you who don't know, I run the Graphic Gear online store where the Neuland reseller in Australia and New Zealand and I have 40 copies here the the book is called The World of Visual Facilitation and it is an absolute monster of a book this tome weighs two and a half kilos it's got over 650 pages and it's really um it's a lovely stock it's really thick paper it's full color it looks beautiful and it has over 50 co-authors so Michelle Walker who is going to be emceeing VizConf on the day has submitted a chapter. Jessamy, the keynote speaker from VizConf last year, submitted the chapter. I have a couple of chapters in there as well. And it covers everything from how to make sketch videos to kind of practical 
tips on using colour and facilitating difficult groups and using VR and it's a really diverse collection of stuff. There's a bunch of cross-cultural stuff in there as well, stories from people in China and Japan about specific case studies that they've worked on. Uh, I think it's a, it's a, a terrific addition to the collection of books in the visual facilitation space and we will have copies for sale at Viscom. So if people want to grab themselves a copy, they can do that on the day. Sounds amazing. Absolutely. Yay. Bring a heavy backpack. You can carry it. <laughs> then I would like to thank you all and have an awesome afternoon. Awesome. You idea. too. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to Sarah, Matt and me. If it was useful, this episode, please share it on LinkedIn and also give us a thumbs up and leave us a rating on iTunes and Spotify. And it really helps to get the word out and more people connect with the topic around graphic recording, around visualization. And yeah, we look forward to see you at VisConf and enjoy the rest of the week.